curiosity not only killed the cat, it spawned a whole radio show. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Jared Hindmarsh. Today, a remarkable figure. Well, they all are. But this bloke, Richard Henry, in the late 1800s, figured through a lot of observation and study as a self-taught naturalist and someone who didn't really like the snobbery of academia. He could have saved so many of our native birds if people had followed his lead. It was about 100 years after that his work was better appreciated and actually put into practice. And he did this all on his own. It's one of the most remarkable stories of a life pretty much mostly in New Zealand that I know of. And it's the story of Richard Henry. Gerard Hindmarsh, how are you? Very good, thank you. And what a delight to tell the story of Richard Henry. Absolutely fascinating character. I must admit, after researching him and reading as much as I could, I am full of admiration for this wonderful human being. Fairly unsung and not widely known, and it hadn't been, of course, for the remarkable story of his life written by Suzanne and John Hill in their 1987 book, Richard Henry of Resolution Island. An incredibly moving story. He's our first sort of dedicated conservationist, I'd say. And because he dedicated his life in the field, and this was at a time, of course, when scientists who were interested in birds were still shooting them like crazy to get their skins and stuffing them and sending them over to museums. But this uh, Richard Henry was dubbed the Hermit of Dusky Sound, was a very uh, self-effacing man, very humble, never put himself out there too much. You know, it was his work, Graham, that really set the tone for our modern caretaking of our native birds, really. All his observations, incredibly, incredibly underappreciated in his time. Uh, and he went to be the caretaker of, uh, or should I say curator is the proper term of Resolution Island. Yeah, he should be on our money, I reckon. There might be a couple of things later in his life that he ascribed to that might have kept him off a dollar bill. But in any case, you could probably find that with a lot of people. But his vision turned out to be the right one. And it's a heartbreaking story about why it didn't work more than 120 years ago. Heavens. But anyway, Jared. You could begin a movie about his life with him loading a gun and shooting himself in the head. Because that's almost where his story starts. It's just nuts. Yeah. It's incredibly tragic, his story, in many ways. And, we, we you know, we have to remember he, he came 
in an era, Graham, when conservation was hardly recognised, you know, but there was a small but growing fraternity of people who were starting to warn of our decreasing species. But this was very much the era of forest clearance. He felt like he was up against a wall. And the worst thing he felt like was that he wasn't needed. Wasn't listened to and looked down upon because he didn't have the right schooling. That's right. This was an era when huge plumes of smoke covered the country. It was all about development. And it was only the efforts of people like Henry and a few Otago lobbyists that got Resolution Island protected in May 1891 as our first wildlife island. Now, this, of course, is standard today that we try to preserve our birds on offshore islands. And this was back then to protect the kākāpō. And Henry got his dream job as caretaker, amazingly, after he tried to commit suicide. We'll get to how this came about, but just a little bit from uh, Richard Henry of Resolution Island. Quietly and rationally, he carried out his plan, certain that none would suffer by his action, that he had settled all his debts to the last shilling and that his body would be unidentified. Henry crept shakily away like a wounded animal to die in a quiet corner apart. He stumbled across a bridge somewhere and scattered his last few shillings about uselessly. Then he took out a six-chambered revolver and shot himself. It's an amazing story, even from then. But anyway, a bit on his background, probably most of his time in New Zealand, but began in Ireland and then to Australia. Yeah, that's right. And uh, his name was Richard Tracy Henry. He was born in Glanbane in County Kildare. Now, this was on the 4th of June, 1845. He was the fourth child of his parents, John Henry. Now, he was a Protestant Irishman, a civil engineer of some standing, and his mother, Sally Ann. Now, their family home, their Stone family home, still stands, actually, on the banks of the River Barrow there. But... Richard was born really at the height of the potato famine. Richard's father was in charge of public works. Now, this was when the British government decided to pull any support. They ordered a complete halt to public works. And it was, you know, their sixpence a day that the workers were earning was keeping these peasants alive. And he had the job to tell them they were now redundant. It was basically a death sentence. He took it really hard, that father, actually. He was devastated. And it was really the reason the family immigrated to Australia in 1851. It came out on the ship Asia. It was a terrible voyage, a leaking ship, all crammed together. On the way out, passing the Cape of Good Hope, the mother dies so tragically. She becomes delirious. The surgeon inspects her. He diagnoses congestion of the brain and said she will be dead in a few hours. Meningitis. Yeah, next day she's dead. They wrap her in canvas and bury her at sea. Calamitous for this family. Seven kids. Then the youngest goes as well. Oh, my God. The, the family, absolutely in mourning, land at Adelaide. They eventually moved to Melbourne. Some of the contracts that John was expecting to take up never worked. He ends up in the gold rushes, setting up a store at Forest Creek. And this is where young Dick Henry, as he was known at that time, became sort of 
plunged into the world, into the natural world. It was something that he just loved. He hunted, he fished, he canoed, he bird nested. And many of his friends were young Aborigines. This was at a time, of course, when people looked down on the Aborigines. Certainly not Richard Henry. He loved being in their company and he loved learning from them. He was defined by this unique curiosity. He really was, and he acquired his own bark canoe from the Aborigines and he went about exploring up the Mary River for swan's eggs and he frequently didn't attend school at all. He preferred to study the habitats of the swans and and he began recording his observations at quite a young age. You sort of see this man developing. But he became obsessed with the bush law of his Aboriginal friends. He used to go out kangaroo hunting. He turned his hand to a bit of market gardening. Certainly the fortunes of the family seemed to change when his elder brother, Alexander was killed at a mill, a piece of wood shot out from the belt and hit him right in the head. This was a tragic event for the family and probably one of the reasons that they decided to come out to New Zealand. Now, brother George played a big part in this. He'd come out to work in New Zealand on the Waka Marina goldfields near Canvas Town, and he brought back stories of a great verdant land and new goldfields, and Richard Henry followed him out. His first real job was at Tianau Downs, this fantastic farm, still there today, of course, still called that, the huge sprawling run adjoining Lake Tianau. This is where Richard Henry found a sort of paradise, if you like. He loved the lake and he, he loved the birds. He travelled around New Zealand as well. He, he spent the summer in Golden Bay where he noted bellbirds sang in their thousands. He went to Pelora Sound, Taranaki. He, all of these observations recorded. He studied the nesting of pigeons up in Taranaki. Now, this was a, a time, too, that the early days of the acclimatisation societies were being formed and rabbits were being liberated into New Zealand. At Castle Rock Station, he got a job shooting rabbits, actually, but he ended up always back at Tianau. Fiordland was something, a place that he just found irresistible. The um, spot where his tiny, tiny, tiny little hut that he lived in, you know, it's just a one-person thing, that's still marked today at Tianau as well, which is lovely. A little pole hut, actually, they describe it as. No, no, and he, he became known there as Henry the Boatman. He was brilliant with boats. Henry the Rabbiter, Henry the Guide, Henry the Sawmiller, Henry the Taxidermist, Henry the Bird Collector, and Henry the Naturalist. And he loved exploring, particularly Lake Manapuri as well. It was uh, interesting. He started to get a kind of a reputation, if you like, as some sort of eccentric farm worker where visitors came and there were an increasing number of visitors coming to Fjordland at this time. He would always be called out to talk to people and things like this, but near um, Mount Luxmore above Manapuri, he, he described the din of ground birds, which he would soon find out, of course, to be the kākāpō, big flocks of them then, and he built himself that little quiet hut that's where he based himself. He just loved it. But in 1863, he imported a 16-foot centreboard 
dinghy uh, would have come overland. He collected bird skins and observed the Takahi. He would always be in for a few orders. The farmer would always give the orders to him. His favourite birds became the paradise ducks, interestingly. He loved documenting the way they related to each other. He was a real field naturalist, way ahead of other scientists at the time. He would just sit there and quietly take it in. But he was alarmed when he discovered that someone had introduced ferrets to Mount Luxmore. This was when he started to predict the end of the kākāpō, and he began to devote it to become his life's work. He was determined. He was dead right, and one of the few, maybe the only one that had a voice, and a very small one at that stage, that actually uh, was bang on as far as that went, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We know early Mary, of course, were responsible for the demise of many bird species, but it was really the acclimatisation societies, Graham, that turned it into a bloodbath. The second big wave of extinctions. Yeah, absolutely. We'll take a break at this stage. The amazing story of Richard Henry. She'll be on our money. Yeah. Life, the universe, and everything in between. Graham Hill's Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Outsiders with Gerard Hindmarsh. Today the story of Richard Henry of Resolution Island, a man who was a visionary for our natural history and went against the academic pomposity of the time. It won't be a spoiler. He um, he he done kirked, if you can use that as a verb. I do. Uh, hundreds of kakapo to an offshore island, but the story ends in tragedy. He is remembered fondly today in conservation circles because his methods and his knowledge are pretty much what people are going with today, and it's working this time. Anyway, he's found himself in Tiano. He's almost a do-anything guy on a farm, a fix-it guy, a good guy with a boat on Lake Tiano, exploring the other side of the lake, and a really keen eye for natural history observation. And he's very worried that the introduction of ferrets and stoats into New Zealand, ostensibly to get rid of the rabbits, is going to mean the demise of our native species. That's his worry, and he wants to do something about it. Jared. Yeah, well, of course, the early attempts at introducing rabbits failed, so a more coordinated release happened in the early 1860s. In a matter of less than a decade, they were spreading uncontrollably over the whole South Island. Well, people were still in favour, but some weren't now. And there was one British magazine, uh, scientific journal Nature, it called it our silly mania in New Zealand that was occurring. It concluded the importations were going to cause the greatest nuisance and no one still listened but the answer of course for for many people in New Zealand and in Parliament was stoats, ferrets and weasels to kill the rabbits and we all know what a terrible disaster that's been. The questions raised in Parliament, even the Governor said if it was a choice between birds or sheep, the sheep win any day. But Bringing up the subject of bird slaughter was still a sort of a no-no, even in the 1870s when one bird collector had killed over 2,000 kiwi. He was nothing but a philistine for bringing that up in Parliament. But people were starting to speak out and 
one Canterbury MP and amateur ornithologist, that was Thomas Potts. Now, he was the first to give a speech about conservation in the New Zealand Parliament, and that was in 1868. But the whole idea of preserving remnants of virgin land for remaining flora and fauna began taking off in the early 1870s. Now, Potts wrote about this in a seminal essay. It was called National Domains when he suggested using islands as refuges. And this was an absolutely unique idea. And he came up with Little Barrier, uh, Derville Island and Resolution Island as possible refuges. Without a doubt, it was a guy called Edwin Mellon who really encouraged Henry to write down his observations about the kākāpō. He became Henry's favourite, if you like, because it was Edward Mellon who owned Tiana Down Station as well and, a, and an active conservationist he was becoming too. But him and Henry sort of sounded off each other huge amount and he encouraged Henry to write. And one of his earliest observations about the kākāpō, I'd just like to read it out here, once when without a dog I met one sitting on a stick under a fern a few feet from the ground and went up to have a talk with it. It looked at me more in wonder than fear until I chucked it under the chin. Then it assumed a fierce attitude and protested in its hoarse voice but made no attempt to go away. And when I let it alone a few moments later it coyly put its head under its feathers and went back to sleep again. Mm. Lovely little thing, but Henry's confidence grew and grew as he began to write under the byline of an old acquaintance. These were well published in the Otago Witness, sort of allegorical tales he hit out at acclimatisation societies and the frustrations of run holders and sheep and denuding the country and the demise of weckers was something he was really concerned about. He wrote how he saw a ferret kill seven out of ten paradise duck chicks in one go. He came firmly to believe that relocation of birds to offshore islands was the only bet. If they could keep them going for half a century, then the rest of the world would wake up to their uniqueness and they would be worth more than their weight in diamonds, as he said. Yet his frustration with academia is... I think quite understandable. There's this little bit from a wonderful book called Rat Island, and this is from an American, William Stolzenberg, not a New Zealand publication, uh, an American one, and oh my goodness, there's just so much on Richard Henry in here. He stopped occasionally to share his theories of kākāpō breeding behaviour with the luminaries of academia to cool receptions. And this is Richard Henry writing... He thinks more of a classical name than about a curious and wonderful fact. He seemed not to take a bit of interest in my story about kākāpōs, but was very anxious to explain to me some straw-splitting difference that shifted a bird out of one class into another. Yeah, that's right. He was talking about Professor uh, Frederick Hutton, actually. Yeah, just 
couldn't understand them, thought they were in a totally different world, not at all concerned about the animals at all. More about what their textbook said. Yeah. Henry became very alarmed when the first mustelids stoats were discovered at Jackson's Bay. Now, this meant they had actually crossed the Alps. There was nothing stopping these animals. The pressure was on. There was a started to be a growing lobby, if you like, that something had to be done. And there was a, quite a bit of debate to make Resolution Island our first island bird sanctuary. The government listened. There was a lot of debate. Henry Wright, he was an influential businessman. He argued, though, that Little Barrier should be the better proposition because it was so far away from the mainland, none of the, the um, predators could swim there. In some ways, that was correct, but it delayed the debate so long that Richard just became more and more depressed about it. And this is where we have this remarkable incident in, in his life where he talks about the black dog of depression. He basically packed up, pulled stumps and Tiana and went up to Auckland, just exasperated. Yeah, and he paid off his debts and everything and just felt rejection, humiliation and the incredible unneeded feeling that he was that no one was going to do anything about this yeah it is just the nuttiest piece and heartbreak most one of the most heartbreaking in this story of you know a, a driven man really yeah um we might as well just read this now from both books actually uh, richard henry of resolution island and rat island by william saltzenberg quietly and rationally he carried out his plan certain that none would suffer by his action, that he had settled all his debts to the last shilling and that his body would be unidentified. Henry crept shakily away like a wounded animal to die in a quiet corner apart. He stumbled across a bridge somewhere and scattered his last few shillings about uselessly. Then he took out a six-chambered revolver and shot himself. The next morning at first daylight, a man admitted himself to the Auckland hospital, Richard Henry, the ultimate handyman and hunter had somehow botched the job of killing himself. The first shot had left Henry standing there blinking. The bullet lodged benignly in his skull. He reconnoitred, put the gun to his head and tried again. The gun misfired. Henry this time took the hint. The remnants of superstition made me think I had better put it off to see what might turn up. <laughs> it's a bit of a story isn't it oh absolutely and lucky he didn't do that third attempt because he did recover and what did turn up was his absolute dream job of course he moved to dusky sound in 1894 to become the first curator or caretaker there yeah it was just a week later after the suicide attempt he got a telegram from his friend melland and said that yeah You've got the job that you wanted. You can be uh, the curator of Resolution Island. Go get your birds. Absolutely. It's just a crazy story, Graham. Yeah. Yeah, but the government money, of course, didn't stretch to paying an assistant, of course, for this, and there was no way he could do it for himself initially. He had to have someone to help build him the hut as well, and so he had to pay that 
out of his own money and Andrew Burt was his first helper. I think he had several over the time, but most of the time he was actually by himself. He does seem like a, a bit of a loner too, doesn't he? Oh, absolutely. He and never married, of course. He never had relationships. He... Oh, there is there's a bit of a hint about some romance referred to by either Melland or someone on the farm, but and no one ever knows anything more about it. That didn't work out. Yeah, yeah. But seems to be more comfortable with his own presence, really, no doubt. Anyway, they started by building a hut, a, com- a reasonably comfortable hut on Pigeon Island, which is very easy rowing off from Resolution there. And um, once that was done, they began making preparations for the capture of Kākāpō on the mainland for release on Resolution. And this was the absolute heyday for Henry. It was sort of his earthly paradise, if you like. His dream had come true. He was going to translocate the birds, as we call it today, get them from the mainland and take them to safety. And this is such a hard thing to do. Imagine doing it by yourself. Just go to, if you ever are there, uh, have, a, have a look at Dusky Sound or any of those other places. Try and walk 10 metres straight in. Go on, go and try it. And he's there trying to get these birds. You just don't get one, put it in a cage and row all that way back. And it's not easy work in the sound either. It's a treacherous place. I mean, the the level of will and enterprise and, and just plain bloody driven effort, it, this isn't an easy job. No, absolutely not. The the booming started in uh, late November 1894 and by by January the following year it was like thunder and he, he started capturing birds in West Jacket Arm. Now, Sorry the- to interrupt again, uh, but what we must say for international listeners, this booming, the kakapo, the night parrot, makes us, the males anyway, make this booming noise when they're calling for mates. Yeah, and they live on the ground, of course. They're a flightless parrot. This astounding booming that can be heard for five to ten kilometres. And it just goes on all night from their bowls that they parade around them. Yeah, it's uh, quite a phenomenon, actually. But uh, he started in um, West Jacket Arm and um, Fiordland there. And in the first hour, the muzzled dog found three nests. But chicks were too young to shift, so they delayed the transfer till March. He made three trips, 75 kakapo. Getting these birds across was quite something in a, in a rowboat. We're, we're talking about dusky sound. I mean, it's a rugged place. Willy wars and, and uh, the rainstorms come in just completely out of the blue. Sometimes he had to hold them, if you like. Uh, he used to say he used to put them in a tree, but no doubt he somehow fenced them in or netted them in, but he used to hand feed them with oats and potatoes and by November 1898 Henry had shifted 572 kakapo also a few kiwi and the island he felt was now stocked to capacity so he's been nearly like two or three years just stocking the island and his job was to protect them now from poachers. He really worked on just 
parading around the place, making sure that no one was going to release a dog, perhaps, or just come in and shoot them. But fishermen in particular who called in with their dogs, he was particularly paranoid about. And the reports of them, Graham, make them out to be a hard-nosed, nasty bunch who used to come in and tease him about releasing dogs. And he would never ever get too upset to their faces, but it would just turn him inside out. It's just appalling, some of the reports about what they did. It's like they were enjoying his suffering and saying, aha, we released a dog the other side of the island. Off you go, try and find it. Yeah, and they always had faster boats, so they knew he couldn't even chase them or do anything. The idea of a curator on an island was just laughable to them. But then even tourists began turning up, and they would just shoot the ducks from their boats just for sport. And Henry became paranoid. He wrote to Doon, who was the superintendent of the tourist health resorts, and he pleaded with them not to publish one word of the reserve in case it attracted more shooters. Now, things quickly started to become unraveled for Henry as the century started to close. He was up against this brick wall of attitudes and, as I said, fishermen would chide him, having him on about a dog. Oh, they left a dog there, a dog escaped. Those bastards, they would tease and taunt him with that sort of behaviour. Yet he just kept his nose to the grindstone and his job was, and he was driven to do it, Dunkirk, as many kākāpō as he could, to safety on Resolution Island. Go out and try it in the late 1800s as well. And another thing to keep in mind probably, Jared, uh, I suspect a few people who might know what dusky sound looks like will be imagining it as they see it in a postcard, won't they? because you never, ever get a postcard as it is on those other 330 days of the year. No way, Graham. And samplies that come, as he said, in groups of 30 million, <laughs> as he described it. All right, the story of Richard Henry will continue after the break. This is the Weekend Variety Wireless on Radio Live. Richard Henry, born in Ireland grew up a little in Australia, became a keen observer and an enthusiast for New Zealand's natural history when he got here. He had his fights with academia. He didn't like the stuffy lot. He had an idea to save New Zealand's native birds because he thought that these stoats and weasels were just basically going to see the end of them. It took about another 100 years for his methods and attitudes to actually take hold again well, after he tried this for the first time on Resolution Island. The poor man tried to kill himself, he was so exasperated, but uh, he did get his dream job, and that was, yeah, OK, Richard, you haven't got letters after your name at all, but we think you can do this, and he went to Resolution Island. I think in the end, about 750 kākāpō, he managed to Dunkirk from the mainland to Resolution Island. He'd be there on his own most of the time, but with sealers. Oh, absolutely. He had the government steamer too, the Hinamoa. He used to call in every three months as well with his supplies. It would be a day that would be so fraught for him. He'd have to suddenly reply to mail to get it back on the boat to go out. He would be unloading supplies. He would often be invited to dine with the captain. Something that he, he really enjoyed was meeting bona fide people, but... 
Definitely the attitudes of some of the people who would chide him would get him down, there was no doubt. Yeah, on the Hinemoa once was our famous ornithologist uh, whose scientific method was a shotgun. He was on one of those trips and went to visit Richard Henry. And this is like chalk and cheese. Walter Buller, who would shoot our rarest birds, he would study them, but he would shoot them and send the stuff, the dead ones, overseas for quite a good return. Uh, he did it with Huia, he did it with a lot. Richard Henry really did not like Walter Buller, which makes Richard Henry go up in my estimation again. It's an unusual kind of modern attitude. He, you know, you could be excused in those times for thinking that, oh, Walter Buller, esteemed ornithologist, what a wonderful man, but he didn't like him. Walter Buller came off the Hinamoa and met Richard Henry and said, have you got any birds I can take? Have you got any dead ones? They did not get on. I just think that's a, a fine indication for Richard Henry's attitude, even way, way back then. And he even wanted his notes too. Yeah, oh, yeah, can I have your notes as yeah, well? But yeah, but he didn't get those. But Governor Gray got them, didn't he, yeah. later on? And uh, after plying him with champagne, he said, can we have your notes? That seems to have um, tricked him out of them anyway. But, mm. but anyway, in, in March, a definitive time, March 1900, some tourists aboard a passing schooner reported to him that they'd seen a weasel on the shore of Resolution Island chasing a wecker about. Now... Henry laughed at them at first, but it absolutely rattled them, and he immediately went about obsessed to trap the animal. Because this is a decade's worth of work. Oh, absolutely, and one weasel could just go around killing every chick, no problem, and eventually the birds as well. And for months he searched, he set traps, and he, he kept up the hunt, but uncertainty, without a doubt, began to sort of eat away at him, and he started transferring some of the birds to the smaller islands nearby. These are um, Mari and Anchor Island and Prove and No Man's Island. Now, six months after the reported sighting of the weasel, he finally sighted it, and it was actually a stoat, probably with a light-coloured winter coat on resolution. He was devastated. He is absolutely gutted. It just changed his life. Henry remained on Resolution Island, a sort of defeated man, if you like, until February 1908. He was 63 when he left, but his latter years there were not that happy. His letters indicated he was dreadfully unsatisfied, to say the least. He felt like he'd been beaten, and he'd expected to get orders for the birds too, both live and as specimens, but they didn't really eventuate. It's sort of the job didn't pan out as he wanted. Birds that he did send away, they often died. You know, guys, today, of course, they get shot around the country on Air New Zealand, but back then they would put on steamers and they often just died going places. And it was a terribly depressed times for him. And he wrote a book, actually. He did write a book, The Habits of Flightless Birds of New Zealand. It was widely appreciated but he noticed that from about 1902 onwards, the parakeets and some of the other birds on the island, they started to decline. And he even noticed that the kakapo seemed to appear emaciated and the tui disappeared completely. And he wondered if stoats had infiltrated, as had rats. 
And then Wildcat started to appear. It looked absolutely hopeless. And worse was still now the commercial fishermen who came for the cod. They taunted him endlessly and they purposely liberated dogs to tease him. And then there were prospectors, there were hunters too, all bought dogs and they all killed birds. It was so sad. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's just so heartbreaking. If it wasn't heartbreaking enough, just a, a poignant little piece of writing from Richard Henry in his hut. I mean, he was very worried about weka and kākāpō. Uh, you can see a few weka today, but not in many places. The pio pio, it's extinct now, but one would just come into his hut on occasion. And he tells this beautiful little story because he, he thinks, yeah, these are probably going to go extinct as well. Just describes how he thought the bird might be lonely. Sometimes I stand the looking glass on the floor against the wall and then the thrush, that's the P.O.P.O., and then the thrush is quite delighted with the company. It sees itself in the mirror, makes itself pretty and sings a little song so low you can hardly hear it. It kisses the glass and carries on all sorts of endearments till it realises that the one in the glass is only mocking it when it ruffles up a crest and says, scoot, and flies away in a temper. Then it calls, whistles, and listens, and wonders why the other doesn't answer. Comes back to the glass and after a time tries to entice it away. One morning in early November, the thrush came back and took itself and lay on the mat in front of the glass, chirruping every now and then. It plucked some fragments of the mat and held them in its beak before the glass, which may have meant to say, let us build a nest. And yet it couldn't find a mate. That's so sad. Probably the last one there. Absolutely. He's he's such a good writer, wasn't he? The way he just observed and wrote it down from his heart. Yeah. Someone bought him a wounded paradise duck. It became one of his best friends there. He just loved it and uh, eventually attracted a mate. They mate for life, of course, and it was start of endless writing about this bird. Oh, just beautiful. All right. He's... Not well on Resolution Islands, what to do with Richard Henry and what would become of this extraordinary decade-long effort, which would only be replicated about 100 years later. We'll be back very shortly. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. The story of Richard Henry of Resolution Island It's outlined in some detail in a modern book by William Stolzenberg out of America. Oh, boy, it's called Rat Island. It's a marvellous book, not just about Richard Henry, but features prominently. Richard Henry, late 1800s, the biography by Susanna John Hill, is now being republished, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, To get a copy used to be about 200 bucks. Uh, But just Google it. Richard Henry of Resolution Island. A remarkable story. A visionary in conservation. He's on Resolution Island and he's Dunkirk hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, 750 around about uh, Kākāpō, and then, yeah, there's a weasel on the island. On top of that, all the taunting and people releasing dogs because they think that's fun. It's broken his heart. Yeah, now the officials in the government began to get concerned about Henry's state of mind. It was sort of described as fragile, and particularly how he he would often get sick after he got wet, which was quite frequently. And one government supply vessel captain actually wrote to the Commissioner of Lands and Survey, and he said, I have some reason to think 
that it might be well to remove Mr Henry from such a lonely locality as I believe he has no companions and if you agree in this instance he should be asked to come in for a time at least and edit the notes of his observations and investigations. The wheels of bureaucracy move slowly but Henry was offered the job as ranger on Kapiti Island in early 1908, which he accepted. He left a defeated man, the Fiordland, that year, and he took up the job on Kapiti in July 1908. His, his little cottage there was known as McLean's Cottage after a former resident, just at Rangatera Point. It's about halfway up the eastern side of the island. There's a lovely little photo of it in the Alexander Turnbull Library described as Richard Henry's Cottage. Four years he stayed there. It was quite a combative time too. Hunters would come over from the mainland. It wasn't an easy time for him and he, he eventually ended up shifting up north to Helensville. His writing became quite erratic actually, not so much an output but the subject matter is there. He, he wrote everything from about hair growth to the elimination of weak and unfit human beings which was even back then was a no-no subject but he had sort of come to believe in the laws of nature and he had few friends he took extreme literary shots if you like at the scientific world and but his existence was hardly noticed at Helensville at all actually yeah, his later writing was pretty nutty, but he's old and broken. What the hell would one expect? Yeah, he lived for a time at Caddy Caddy where he was sort of in an Irish enclave, if you like, but he deteriorated more and more. And in October 1928, we see that his handwriting's totally shaky. He can hardly make out what he's saying, but a, a year later he was admitted to the Avondale Mental Hospital in a state of confusion. And it was noted in the admission notes that he had no relatives or friends prepared to look after him and there was nowhere else for him to go. This was the tragedy now of this amazing visionary. He had been totally abandoned and he had abandoned the world. Mm and was just about to be forgotten forever. Yeah, totally, and he died on the 13th of November 1929. He was aged 84. Death was determined by a doctor as senile decay and heart failure. He was buried in the Hillsborough Cemetery and he only had one person to his funeral, Graham, the local postmaster, who had sort of befriended him after he used to go there to get his mail, but the only person to attend his funeral. Uh, just uh, such a tragedy. Oh, damn, it should be a movie, shouldn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, you have to have some perseverance to find his grave in the Hillsborough Cemetery today. I've tried, and I can't do it. <laughs> oh, OK, they don't even have it recorded in the registry? They no. do, but you've got to find LH95, and they, they're not labelling stuff in the cemetery. It's... You Useless. Oh, man. Just it's, it's like the tragedy of it all, isn't it? It's like a great Greek tragedy. Here he over is. Over and over again. It's like the story of Job. What else? Yeah. I noticed in the first edition of Susan and John's book that Don Merton, the bird man, really, who, who started the whole Kakabo breeding program, and, of course, they relied heavily on the notes of Henry. He wrote the epilogue in the Hills book, and he called him a remarkable and talented field ornithologist and 
how only recently his work had been acknowledged. Henry was the first real observer in the field to predict what would happen in the 1980s. Yet more tears. Don Merton's amazing work with the Kākāpō, Black Robin and many other things, it was taking on what Richard Henry had done. And there was one Kākāpō left in Fiordland, a male, and it would trudge up this cliff every night during the breeding season, sit in its hole and go boom, boom, and to nobody. It was just calling out for a mate, and there were none. And that was the last Fiordland Kākāpō. It was yoinked to safety. It was Dunkirk, just like Richard Henry had done to Stewart Island and probably the most important Kākāpō on the planet because it was the only Fiordland member of the species. And its name, it was called Richard Henry and only died a couple of years ago. It's absolutely a uh, moving story, Graham. it really is. Just last week, actually, I went up into Kaharangi on the Gulen Downs to check out the introduced Takahi that had been put there, the first wild population outside of Fiordland. But I thought of Henry the whole time I was there, thinking, oh, my goodness, up here, he would have just loved it to have just seen these birds. I saw them walking along the heathy track, these birds. Just such a moving thing to see these Birds that only number now in a couple of hundred, three, 300 and something now. Yes, when you think about the Kākāpō, good heavens, how few there are. Nowhere near the amount that Richard Henry individually rode from the mainland to that island over and over and over again for the better part of a decade and to no avail. There were about 750 and the Kiwi, every single one dead. After all that effort, bloody hell. Because it was just about, oh, I don't know, 100 metres too close to the mainland. And nasty bastards uh, re- releasing animals on his island saying, ha ha, there goes your life's work. Oh, no, it's a uh, remarkable story. A national hero. And as you said, he should be on the money. He should be on a damn $100 bill. Why not? Forget the eugenics. That was when he was old and mad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, who knows what Edmund Hillary might have said in a state of delirium. Yeah, that's right, Graham. you know. But Henry, he didn't follow greatness. He didn't fit into power and, you know, the pursuit of power or wealth or money. He just cared for the birds, and that's what makes them so special. The world's first conservationist. Easily called that, actually. The story of Richard Henry today. Uh, I think we can actually leave you with the sound of Richard Henry, the bird version, named by... Don Merton, who died just a little after. Thank you very much, Jared Hindmarsh. Uh, cracking story. Oh, thank you, Graham. <laughs>